Today's episode is brought to you by Heineken. Figuring out how to beat the heat for Labor Day weekend this year? Try an ice-cold Heineken. Heineken Original Lager is made with natural ingredients with pure malt and their famous A yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Pick up a pack or have it delivered this Labor Day weekend and drink responsibly. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Tenet. Finally, kinda. This is a no-spoilers conversation about the most anticipated film of 2020, the often delayed, much speculated about, frequently desired Tenet, writer-director Christopher Nolan's 11th feature film. Joining us today to discuss Tenet is the only man in the world I know who has seen Tenet. It's Ringer contributor and film critic Adam Naiman. Hi, Adam. Hey, Sean. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to have an ad hoc conversation here. We're going to do something a little bit different. I think Amanda and I will probably be back on this show at some point, maybe in the next five years, talking about Tenet. I don't know when we're going to get a chance to see it because we live in the state of California. Adam, you're a Canadian citizen. Before we get into the details slash non-details of whether Tenet is any good and people should see it, let's just have a Nolan conversation. Listeners of this show and the rewatchables know that I am sometimes fairly negative about Christopher Nolan's movies, but that doesn't mean that I'm not a fan. Uh, For you guys, when you think of Nolan, what do you think of? Adam, I'll start with you. I think the best uh, piece of film criticism about Christopher Nolan was that story in Vulture that after his kids saw Phantom Thread, they called him Reynolds Woodcock for six months, (laughs) which is not film criticism, but it is, right? Because there is something kind of fastidious and kind of ridiculous about him. Right. He he is, you know, a guy who directs in a suit and tie. <laughs> he spends two hundred and fifty million dollars on movies. He like blows up real, you know, didn't he have to crash a real plane for Dunkirk? Like I, I believe so. These are really kind of ostentatious things. But you know, if you subscribe to the idea that these indie geniuses kind of buy their way into Hollywood and earn that kind of power, he's made a lot of hits and worked at a fairly high artistic level. And while I often find myself wanting to make fun of him, I'm also inclined to defend him as a guy who has a vision and has the skills to execute it and who bats not a thousand, but like he bats about 300 and that's the hall of fame, right? If you bat 300, you you make the hall of fame. Amanda, what about you? I, I know that you're mostly a fan, right? Yeah, it's interesting. And the way you phrase the question is interesting. So when I think of Christopher Nolan, I think of like a very well-crafted, big-top blockbuster, and then I stop thinking. Like, that's it. I go to the movies, and I had a great time, and I personally do not feel the need to re-examine the experience or what it meant in any way, shape, or form. It was enough for me to go to the movies, be like, Wah! for two hours, and then and then carry on with my life. And that, in a lot of ways, to me, is like the ideal blockbuster experience. But I do understand that that is not the typical Christopher Nolan movie consumption experience because there has developed this culture around the movies after the fact and and what they mean and being a part of that community that I think has both like added to his appeal and also sometimes weighs down the experience a little bit. And I don't think that you can ultimately... Um, hold Christopher Nolan entirely responsible for that. So I think about the Reddit of it all when I hear Christopher Nolan, but I also think about all the times I can remember each Christopher Nolan movie I've seen and where I saw it and the circumstances and being like, huh, I wonder what that was about. And then, and having a great time. And that type of experience at the movies is increasingly rare. Yeah. Adam, what do you think about the general analysis of the Nolan film? I I noticed in your review of Tenant that You said that there are some people who will look closely at the philosophical themes that he's pursuing in his movies, and and maybe that's not always the best idea. Well, I mean, the work doesn't necessarily always hold up to scrutiny for anybody, right? And I I just have a thing as a critic, I've written about it sometimes on The Ringer for some of those other kind of millennial filmmakers where you have this incredible talent that you see when people are working on a small canvas and the ideas feel big because the movies are small. And then when the movies become inflated, you'd like to think that the ideas would inflate along with them, but they don't necessarily. So Memento is a movie that feels gigantic to me, 
because it's such a precise, self-contained little work. And when I start, for me, getting into stuff like Inception and Interstellar, I kind of roll my eyes because I just see the inflated production scale and the ideas kind of feel pretty small. But, I mean, you've got film critics or theorists like David Bordwell who have written about him very seriously, not in a dorm room poster way or a red letter media way or a film bro way, but in like a really interesting analytical way about the way he composes, the way he edits, the way he story he tells stories. I think he's an absolutely worthy subject for analysis. I just don't always feel like doing it, much like Amanda says with his movies, because sometimes I'm just like, well, that's over. I mean, I've not thought <laughs> I've not thought about The Dark Knight Rises once since sitting through it, except to think about, you know, how they're all competing to be the most inaudible, as Steve Coogan says in the trip. But I want to talk about sound design later. It's very important to me that we talk about this, but we'll, we'll get there later. We should do it when we discuss Tenet. I, I shame on you for not thinking about The Dark Knight Rises because you're missing out on all this great Bane content. There's an mm-hmm. extraordinary amount, mostly created by Chris Ryan, and uh, it's all good. <laughs> all of it is worth it. So when his movies, I think, are... One of the things that makes him, I think, worthy of analysis of conversation is he has a definitive style and I think arguably a point of view. You could make the case that his point of view is fairly patrician, fairly um, upper class in a way, um, certainly very white. And that this kind of interesting hybrid of English and American uh, experience shot through the lens of some probably mostly Kubrickian influence. He seems like the filmmaker that he is most obsessed with, most interested in kind of addressing with his the, sto- the kinds of stories that he wants to tell. I, I, I definitely agree with you, Adam, that Interstellar and Inception are the kinds of films, the kinds of ambitious, big, somewhat philosophical Nolan movies that don't do a lot for me, that don't register much with me. And I tend to think, weirdly, science fiction is an area that he doesn't quite know how to wrap his arms around. And I think when he stays slightly more grounded and looks at, if he's trying to essentially break noir apart, for example, or a detective story apart, for example, I think he's actually really good at that. But the bigger his ambition gets, the the more confused, frankly, I get by his movies. I don't know, Amanda, what do you think? Do you like the bigger Nolan films, the smaller Nolan films? What, what's your, what's your, what's your Nolan type? Definitely bigger. And I think I'm going to be the only person when we um, exchange top fives, which I believe we're going to do later in the podcast. Spoiler alert, I'm probably the only person that's going to be speaking about Inception with any level of affection. Um, and and it's interesting that you identified that he doesn't really, that sci-fi is maybe not his strong area because I like I'm not a person who enjoys really deep sci-fi. And once you get into the details and the here is how the science over here and like whatever mechanism that has made us age 50 years, but also it's 300 years ago works. I'm just like, I'm out. I don't care about this. And so there is like a vagueness to his sci-fi and a um, a philosophical or like metaphysical aspect to um, Inception that's just like the right level for me because I'm not going to interrogate it. And so I watch Inception and I'm like, well, I like Leo. I like Edith Piaf. Like, sure, the walls are kind of crumbling in on each other in a very visually memorable way. And there's just kind of one central really half-baked idea that I don't, will never really be solvable, but that's okay with me because I don't really enter this as like Hercule Poirot trying to solve a mystery. Um, and and I think also Inception illustrates something that he is really good at, which is kind of like the pocket philosophical idea. I was reading a novel last night. It's called Last Hang Standing by Lauren Ho. And it's like, honestly, like Bridget Jones updated and incepted is used as a verb in the novel, just like and it, as meaning like someone put something in your head and then it like became true in your own mind and you never even knew that it was like someone else's origin, which like that came from inception, you know, like that idea of, of seeding someone and something in someone's mind. And now it's just being used as like a regular part of our language. I like, I don't know. I thought that was pretty interesting. I like, to me, that's evidence of, of, uh, some sort of achievement. He definitely has influence. I wonder, Adam, do you think he's the kind of filmmaker that is going to last? Do you think he's someone that 50, 75 years from now will look at him as, you know, important as a, as a loaded word? But you know how the, the sort of reputations of filmmakers over time, sometimes the most popular filmmakers don't necessarily 
persist and sometimes those that are overlooked become more meaningful. You know, what what do you just if you had to speculate, where do you think he'll stand 50 or 75 years from now? I mean, he absolutely benefits from the kind of filmmaker he is in a lot of ways, which is glossy, high budget, pretty masculine, <laughs> white, uh, genre connected, which are also things that I think within the canon and within criticism are being viewed increasingly and productively with a kind of skepticism, like maybe on the affectionate end of the scale, affectionate skepticism, and on the other end of the scale, like this, this, this you know, do we really need to elevate more filmmakers like this? He's in already. You know, he's in whatever that millennial canon is going to be. I think that, you know, if the late 20, if the early 21st century is defined by superhero movies, he certainly made a few that had a giant influence. You know, if the early 21st century is going to be defined by the integration of, uh, you know, you know, CGI and special effects, he's kind of in there the way that a Spielberg or a James Cameron would be. There's a lot to suggest he's not necessarily going to go away, but I'm also not sure that the affection for him is going to deepen. And that's partially because we live in a culture where people analyze, reclaim, and backlash movies instantly instead of over time. The best thing that ever happened to Kubrick was time passing. You know, and the lack of massive reception of his movies at their inception point when they came out. There's only like a few important reviews of Kubrick every time he made a movie. With Nolan, I think he's been so chewed over and so discussed and video essayed and spoilered and explained and whatever else. I don't know what's going to be left in 75 years to do with these movies, honestly. Yeah, that question sort of dovetails with something that Amanda and I are always talking about. And obviously, is at the forefront of people's minds around the release of Tenant, which is. Nolan has been deeply committed to the idea of the movie-going experience, the theatrical experience. He cares about this as much as anyone who makes films. He's very vocal about it. He's written op-eds in national newspapers. He speaks about it all the time. Obviously, he cares about Tenet in particular, opening in a movie theater, and you know, just the general constant chattering and anxiety around the release of this movie has stoked continued conversation around this idea. And it's because he makes movies for the big screen, right? I mean, most filmmakers make movies for the big screen, but he in particular seems obsessed, consumed by this concept. And in 50 years, we're probably not watching movies on the big screen. And I don't know if that will hurt or help his reputation. It, maybe it doesn't ultimately matter because it hasn't really mattered for Stanley Kubrick, who also was making grand scale entertainment and philosophical exegesis on big ideas. But I do think that if you do, if you didn't see Inception on a big screen the way that all three of us did, if you just saw it at home on HBO Max, would it still occupy the same place in the minds of so many people who love it so much? I honestly don't know. I think it's like an interesting concept to discuss. What do you think, Amanda? Well, a couple things. Number one, the Inception memes are fantastic. So like just Leo looking confused and why couldn't Michael Caine just bring the kids to France? Great questions. Let's investigate it. But, you know, I bring that up for a couple of reasons, which is that Inception already exists outside of um, itself as a movie. And I think Christopher Nolan is really representative um, of a of a trend that we talk about a lot of there's the movie itself as text and then there is the culture around the movie. And that everything from the message boards to the memes to what people understand, like how people consume it and talk about it, which has become really essential, certainly to having your movie um, seen, but also to like, quote, where it is in the culture right now. Now, does that last in 50 years? I like, I don't think so. You do lose a lot of that context. But I do also think if we're, again, speaking outside the movies, it's important to point out that. Christopher Nolan at this point has kind of been at the center of like several important movie industry flashpoints in the past decade. Obviously, Tenet, which is a historical movie now, even though I may never see it because I can't, but just because of where we are um, in the pandemic and how the pandemic is affecting movie theaters and vice versa. And then you also got to remember um, the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight not being nominated for an Oscar and the Oscars essentially changing their entire big picture system in response to um, the Dark Knight not being nominated, which is about the Academy, but is also about taking mo superhero movies seriously. And I, like, I still think in terms of superhero movies are serious in that like we're all glum and we miss our parents' origin story phase. That's at Christopher Nolan's feet, but also... 
this continuing movement for Hollywood to actually respect this type of storytelling, he'll always be the leader of of that movement and that school of thought. So I, he's certainly an important important historical figure in the movies. Again, is that something people care about in 50 years? I have no idea. I wonder if the filmmaker that he has the most in common with is is Hitchcock in that respect, in that he's considered a great entertainer. His movies are serious and he is a high-level craftsman, but he's not necessarily, if not respected, recognized by the kind of film academy hoi polloi. I, 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 I'm not sure if he's, in the same way that Hitchcock didn't, never won a Best Director Oscar. Christopher Nolan might not win one, even though he has made what many people would say are sort of the signature films of 2005 through 2020. What do you think, Adam? I, well, I want to try and yoke what you just said to what Amanda said. I mean, what Amanda said about him being at these flashpoints in contemporary film history is super interesting and super true. And I think that not just the Dark Knight in terms of best picture, but the Dark Knight in terms of critics kind of being almost bullied. And in some cases, literally, because I was there on the ground when that happened, like literally <laughs> bullied into acclaiming this thing as art. And that one-stop shop of like, isn't it a nice coincidence that what's playing in 4,000 theaters is also the best American movie since The Godfather <laughs> Part Two? Boy, that really that really takes away having to do legwork, seeing literally anything else, which drove me nuts. But I think that the thing that he lacks, that Kubrick had in abundance, and that Hitchcock had in abundance, uh, and that he has almost none of, is humor. And it's funny that he is such a memed filmmaker because memes are often at the expense of the movies that they are memeing. This is why when you mention Leo looking confused, I'm like, that shit's very funny because mm -hmm. I don't take Inception seriously at all. So laughing at it's great. I think that Nolan's movies lend themselves almost to that, if not slavish devotion where you're like, I am on this wavelength and this is a great piece of art, which fair enough, if people feel that way about Interstellar, all power to them. Uh, you know, If you're not feeling that, you're kind of laughing at them. You cannot laugh at Stanley Kubrick because he's laughing already. You can try. And you know what? The people who've laughed at Kubrick have not had the last laugh. And the same with Alfred Hitchcock. He's very funny. You know, I think that Nolan, I rewatched Memento towards the beginning of the pandemic just for fun. I'm like, you know why this is probably his best movie? It's funny on purpose. When, uh, when Guy Pierce is like, am I chasing this guy? Is he chasing me? That's uh, simultaneously about as thoughtful as Nolan gets. And that's funny, you know? I think that the humor has bled out of the movies or the humor has kind of disappeared from the work. I don't know how many movies truly hold up in genre cinema or, or formalist cinema circles without some sense of humor. I think that that's his big Achilles heel. And that's why, for me, he's not Kubrick or Hitchcock, even though you could argue that in terms of the industrial space he occupies, that's certainly what studios think of him now. He's the closest thing we have to a Kubrick in that sense of like, I can spend a gigantic amount of studio money doing anything I want and no one is going to say no. Let's try to have a fairly truncated conversation about our favorites of his films, because while the, the case that you made, Adam, for the Dark Knight maybe not being all that <laughs> and a bag of donuts um, is compelling, I still find myself thinking it's the best thing he's done. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that is necessarily. I don't know if maybe I was incepted by the, the film media at the time into believing that perhaps I was spending too much time on IMDb message boards because I, too, had been waiting for a serious and gritty look at Batman that captured the anger and frustration and fear of the Joker character and all that other bullshit. But I still, when I watch that movie, flaws and all, it does give me the kind of electrifying feeling that I like in a mainstream movie. And, you know, I it's it's still my favorite of his movies, even though I think Memento is more clever and definitely funnier. Shout out to Joey Pants. That's the other reason it's so good is because it's he's got a character like that guy in that movie. Um, and I have a, a t way more admiration for Dunkirk than I did when I first saw it. And I do quite like The Prestige. And even Interstellar, I think, has some things that I find really, really strong and interesting. The Dark Knight is the one that I always come back to. That's that's like that's that's my number one. That's the one I've seen the most. That's the one that I that gives me chills uh at times. Amanda, what what about you? What are the what are your favorite Nolan films? 
Yeah, so I agree with you about Dark Knight, and I rewatched it last night. Honestly, for the first time probably in five years, believe it or not, I'm not in the habit of just like watching Batman movies on my downtime. And it was an interesting experience because the first 90 minutes of this movie of were me just like saying aloud, holy shit, this movie is so good. And like, oh, I forgot about this part. And every single set piece, and it, you know, and the first 90 minutes are so ingeniously crafted because you just get like a bonkers set piece like and then you get Heath Ledger and then another set piece and it's just going and 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 it's amazing and then the last hour I was like how is this movie still going like honestly how is this movie still happening so I don't think that it's perfect but I think that it's you know it's really the only time where the kind of the solemn possibly too self-serious nature that Adam has been referencing and that I agree with kind of meets its subject matter and and walks the line and honestly has the the Heath Ledger chaos to kind of it's which isn't it's not quite funny though actually I do think Heath Ledger's performance is very funny at certain points in that movie but it's taking the edge off in the way that um Adam identified combined with just really screwed up exhilarating action and like I am not a person who always responds to giant action pieces, but there is just, there is a psychological element to all of them. You're just like, oh my God, I can't believe this happening. Like, oh no, he's doing this. Um, and they're, they're engaging and they're visually so impressive. And also this might just be a little quarantine talking, but the scale of them, they're just like outside in so many places with so many people. Um, you know, the, the funeral scene in particular is, um, you just, it is, extremely upsetting and also so hard to imagine right now. So I think it brings together all of his skills um, and maybe even corrects for his weaknesses the most of any of the movies. Um, I, again, I just, I like Inception. I have only seen it twice and I don't honestly know what happens in it. And it's, but (laughs) it is a very useful concept. Inception as a concept, I've used a lot in my life. I really, I remember the trailer and I think that's movie as event. Um, And that is the the one that I was most a a part of as like, oh, this movie's coming out and oh, it's exciting. And oh, I saw it and I don't know what it means. Um, Helps also that I was a like day-to-day movie blogger at that time. So was really a part of it. Um, I too enjoy Memento. Um, as, and I, I, I'll let you guys talk about it more. It's just, it's another thing where it's like a pocket full, you know, reference for me, like, and it's maybe because my husband has such a bad memory, but like trying to remember things by tattooing, like the guy in Memento is just something that we talk about in our home a fair amount. And I, I wish Zach would do more of it. So, um, it's only going to yeah. get more resonant the older we get. That's the I thing know, about Memento. I know. It's really, it's, it's tough. So, you know, those are mine. And, and I have, I put Dunkirk on my list as well, where I kind of think that's the, the, um, the solemn, we're taking this serious aspect of Nolan um, executed at its best and it's most moving. And I, and I do find it very moving. Yeah. The one thing I just wanted to say about what you said about Dark Knight is I, I, I've said this in the past. I find the stretch from, the sort of chase sequence throughout Gotham where the Joker is and is is driving the truck all the way through the sequence when the Joker escapes and is dr- having his head is dangling outside of the cop car yeah. as like that that is kind of like the pinnacle of just the general entertainment machine that is Chris Nolan and I wish that the movie would have just ended right there and then he never yes. made another Batman movie I wish if he had just stopped and just said this is actually just a movie about chaos this is a movie about the imperceptible nature uh, and unpredictable nature of life. That would have been such a radical and fascinating, brave, and almost impossible choice. But um, everything that happens after that and everything that happens in The Dark Knight Rises, as Adam alluded to, kind of undoes a lot of what I think makes The Dark Knight so great, yeah. unfortunately. Um, Adam, what about you? What, are you, what, are your, what are your favorites of the Nolan filmography? I have softened a bit on the dark night because it's on TV a lot. And when you have a movie that has that kind of hot wired performance that ledger gives, which I think was above reproach, you know, even when Nolan sometimes I think gives actors too much tether or doesn't control them. You know, I thought I think ledger's quite brilliant. I mean, I thought so at the time and I think so now it's moving to watch him. It can't help but be. And yet whoever it was who blogged or tweeted or told me at the time that the movie was like a PG-13 Michael Mann movie or an airline edit of a Michael Mann movie will just never get out of my head. There's something about it that 
is like, what if heat, but silly. And I've just never been able to get over that. Um, (laughs) My favorite movie of his by a lot. And it's one that I got to write about for you guys when there was some Nolan symposium around when Dunkirk came out is the prestige. Cause I think in a way it's his most personal movie. And I say that a bit sarcastically because it's about a couple of tryhards, you know, desperately trying to entertain people by any means necessary and essentially destroying themselves and each other in the process. It's a really fatalistic movie about entertainment. Who better to praise a movie like that than a couple of podcast hosts? I mean, geez. Yeah. I think that it's a movie that demonstrates not, not so much all his strengths and none of his weaknesses, but where they're just really compellingly held in tandem. Like he is so good. The one thing I was thinking about this during, you know, Tenet, which is not a spoiler, but just thinking about the thing that he has, he is so good at making you feel like something is coming. He has a feeling mm. of imminence in his work or incipience, not inception, but incipience, like something's coming. And maybe it's the next cross cut that's going to bring it. Or if it's not the next cross cut, it's the next cross cut. It's like something's coming. And the prestige has that building steam anticipation sense. It just drives it like a train. And every time I watch it, I am caught up in it and thrilled by it. I think it is so enjoyable, even if in the light of day, that is a deeply silly movie. And like ground zero of his kind of dead wife problem too, which we can get into later. That's a fun movie. And I think Memento is a slightly fleeter, less heavy, less ponderous version of the same thing. Those are the two movies of his that have the greatest sense of forward drive, but also like what is around the corner. That's something he does better than almost anybody. And that's why I like those two movies a lot. Today's episode is brought to you by Heineken. Figuring out how to beat the heat for Labor Day weekend this year? Whether you're headed outside safely or staying indoors, be sure to enjoy the always seasonal Heineken Original Lager. Heineken Original Lager is made with natural ingredients with pure malt and their famous egg yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Savor the last days of summer with an ice-cold, crisp Heineken. The perfect way to cap the last moments of summer. Pick up a pack or have it delivered this Labor Day weekend and drink responsibly. Today's episode is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to skateboard from Tony Hawk or improve your gardening skills with Ron Finley. With over 85 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Maybe like me, you want to learn about effective and authentic communication from the broadcast journalist and Good Morning America host, Robin Roberts. Or maybe you're interested in learning about interior design from Kelly Wiersler. Masterclass is accessible on your phone, web, or smart TV. Classes are broken out into individual video lessons, usually around 10 minutes long. Each class is supported by downloadable materials, lessons, recipes, or more, and you can explore at your own pace. An annual membership is just $180 US per year. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a big picture listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash big picture. That's masterclass.com slash big picture for 15% off masterclass. So we all have three movies on our list. We all, we share three of these. We share the dark Knight, We share Dunkirk and we share Memento. And, you know, I think that are those, those are not necessarily the consensus best Nolan movies. You know, I think, I think the consensus best Nolan movies are certainly the dark, the dark Knight, but inception and maybe interstellar. I, I think, um, even amongst critics and fans, I feel like those are the two that people will point to. Maybe Dunkirk is, maybe I'm overlooking that. I don't know. And maybe it doesn't really matter. And maybe I'm just asking a question that doesn't have an answer, but I'm trying to wrap my head around kind of maybe why we diverge a little bit from the conventional wisdom about him and what it is specifically about him that makes me want to, I seriously considered putting insomnia on my list, for example, because even though insomnia does not necessarily have that wow, whirling dervish energy that so many of his other movies do. And actually I think that movie might be his only film that doesn't have that sense of imminence that you're describing, Adam. I think that there's something in the craft and the idea of that movie that I find really compelling. But I think if I put it on my list, people would be like, you're such a take Lord. That's such a weird whack, you know, attention drawing move to put that movie on there over you know, Batman Begins or or certainly Inception. 
But I don't know. I'm I, I, I'm just I'm drawn more to the slightly more unlikely aspects of his work, and I don't know why that is. Well, that's that's his appeal, right? Which is that he's working in genre and blockbuster, but he's giving more than we have been trained to expect from a genre and a blockbuster. There is more, comp- you know, composition and and technique, and even. <laughs> We can debate like how much the f- philosophy or the ideas like actually play out, but he's trying to do more with a blockbuster than, say, like your average franchise or like you know Transformers, Dark of the Moon or whatever. Though I guess Dark of the Moon is actually trying to do a lot, which we don't really need to get into that. Um, and so if if that is what draws you to Christopher Nolan, then you're gonna. It makes sense that we're drawn to like the margins a bit more because. That he is managing to work a bit more in the margins than most blockbuster directors. That's what I would say. I can I can hear a anonymous Twitter egg saying, "Why didn't you guys talk about Batman Begins?" I can hear that voice. It it it, it resonates deeply for me. And uh, I don't know. I don't think I don't really care about Batman Begins all that much, which is strange because it's the first film in a trilogy, and that's usually the one that draws the most attention. It's so unusual that that's an overlooked movie. None of us have it on our list. I don't think it would have come up in conversation if I did not think of that Twitter egg. Ba- uh, Adam, what do you think of Batman Begins? I think Batman Begins is an interesting movie historically because it's at that early point of this very now 2010s and beyond concept of world building. You know, the Raimi Spider-Man movies and the Singer X-Men movies had kind of gotten there first. It's not the first time that someone made a movie thinking there was going to be sequels. You know, it's enthralled to the Star Wars universe in that sense. But it really was this idea of world building and table setting and getting you used to actors and being like, you know what? No matter what happens, unless this is the biggest flop ever, there will be more. So I'm going to play the long game in terms of storytelling. And that's the way that Nolan and his superhero movies kind of make it hard to judge him because I think we're in a moment of like interlocking content and peripheral storytelling. And that's what drives me crazy about Marvel is the idea that very few of these things have standalone qualities. Nolan was piloting that before Marvel even got started. And yet I think he insists to a certain extent on standalone spectacularness to the movies as opposed to just, well, you got to watch it all and you got to watch the Netflix series and you got to read the comic and whatever else. So when I think of Batman Begins, I'm like, it's it's okay. Dark Knight was better, but of course the Dark Knight was better because there was more of the world to explore. By the time of the Dark Knight Rises, which I kind of want to make fun of, but I know we're short on time and I could go on for a long time about that movie's politics, among other things. Oh my God. Uh, you know, it's just overstuffed. Uh, you know, it's like a three-hour movie with multiple main characters and just an insane amount of problems happening every 10 minutes. That's the escalation of the world building, and I think taking it to a limit point and beyond it. But I mean, no, Batman Begins is as good as anything else he's made. There's nothing wrong with it. it Bane invented Occupy Wall Street, Adam. Did you know that? <laughs> don't even, don't even, don't even get me started. <laughs> Let's... um. I'm sure we'll have more Nolan conversations in the future. So we'll, we'll table the the history of Nolan for now. And let's, let's talk about the big ticket. Let's talk about Tenet. So Adam, you've seen this movie and you have a very challenging, uh, a challenging opportunity in front of you, which is to talk about this movie in a way that won't make people mad at you. And I, I don't envy your position. And frankly, I don't want the movie spoiled for me, although I know that it's probably unspoilable because it doesn't make sense. Is that fair? Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, the biggest spoiler is that it takes place over a Labor Day weekend. A single mother and her son are charmed by a convict played by Josh (laughs) Brolin. No, I mean, I think that... um, Wow, I've been sold the wrong bill of goods on that one. Wrong bill of goods. I mean, look, it's having the opportunity to write about it for you guys being based in Toronto simultaneously, like kind of fun. And we did something fun with the review, you know, by redacting parts of it, although you can read the unredacted version. There's the larger context around it is not really funny. I mean, of why people aren't seeing it and what is at stake and people going to see it. So it's like, how do you talk about this in the right way? And then how do you not spoil it? I, I, think that that review, even the unredacted version, is pretty good at not giving the game away. Like, you didn't yell at me before this, being like, you said too much. So that's okay. I think you did but, great. You know, that. So, so, that, so, so, so that part's okay. 
but yeah, I mean, it's you, you, you got to be careful because for some people, if you literally say anything, like the title's a palindrome, people are like, stop right there. You've said too much. The title is the same backwards and forwards. You've told me too much. How could you spoil the whole movie like that? So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you want me to to, to proceed, but I'll proceed with caution. Well, let's use, well, let me start with this. Did you, Adam Naiman, human man, <laughs> like, like Tenet? Did you like, did you find it to be an entertaining, worthwhile, interesting, compelling, powerful, deep movie? That's a uh, lot so- of, that's a lot of adjectives and a lot yeah. of different standards to put on a as, on as any movie. Adam's very smart. I, I yeah. trust him to answer that question. As I wrote, there is a line in the movie, which I don't think is a spoiler, where someone says to someone, don't try and understand it, just feel it. That is a line in Tenet. That is good advice for anything. It is especially good advice for this idea of inverted time or time inversion. Uh, and it was a good way for me to test how I felt about the movie, which is, did I understand it? Not really. And I don't think that that's because I'm stupid. Did I feel it? Not really. But I didn't have to try that hard to have a good time. I had a very good time for the first hour, much like Amanda's discussion of watching The Dark Knight. Good time for the first hour. Less of a good time in the last 90 minutes. Not without merit throughout. And kind of as much a test case for the good and bad parts of Christopher Nolan as anything else he's ever made. I think that that's what you guys may end up talking about when you see it is it's like in a very Tenet-esque way of the future and the past, you'll be like, we had this conversation already. We had this conversation about all those other movies and it's the same conversation about Tenet. It is of a piece with the rest of the work. Do you think that it's an active troll job on his part to defy his critics by leaning even deep, more deeply into this kind of storytelling? Okay. Well, you're going to have to let me, when you use the word trolling and Nolan, you have to let me say something here. You know, if you have to bleep me or cut me off, that's fine. The troll part of this movie is the sound mixing. I need someone to explain to me if he hears things differently than other human beings, like dogs with whistles. There's a $250 million movie that is absolutely pristine on the level of cutting and color correction, you know, I think more people help to make this movie than run governments. And 30%, 30% of the dialogue is straight up inaudible. And I was asking people after the screening, I'm like, is it me? And they're like, no. Like, what did that person say in that scene? They say, I don't know. Why does everyone talk through masks and over walkie-talkies and over explosions? We have no idea. What did that person say? I don't know. I'm not trying to be dumb. Like, I'm not performing here. I'm just like, this is an unbelievably interesting part of this movie. It's the same with The Dark Knight Rises, right? You remember the studio asked him to re-record some of Bane's dialogue because people are like, what? So that's the part of me that's like, if, if he's trolling, it's pretty funny because it's a $250 million movie that sounds like it's underwater. I, Amanda, what, what, what do you want to ask Adam about his tenant experience? What was it like being in a movie, in a movie theater? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I teared up a bit sitting down in the movie theater. Oh, Because yeah, I, you know, great. I've been seeing movies my whole life and I love doing it. I went to a drive-in of Crash a couple of weeks ago. I did not tear up at that. Uh, but, you know, sitting in an actual movie theater was like pretty moving. And then the wait, movies... wait, wait, wait. Was it Paul Haggis's crash or David no, Cronenberg's Dave, crash? David, David like, Cronenberg's crash. That's <laughs> another. I that's, knew that. Come on. That's a whole. That's a whole other podcast. Uh, that was good. No, I mean it was very moving to be there, and it was also nerve wracking. Amanda, like you know, you're sitting far away from everyone else. You're breathing through a mask, which, given some of the mask industry and I- imagery in the movie, is weirdly sure. experiential in 3D. You know, there's a lot of mask. A lot of masks in this movie. You got one on your face while watching it. And, uh, you know, the whole time in the back of my mind, I was sort of thinking, it's nice to be here, but should I really be here? I didn't feel unsafe. And the studio and the distributor, all the precautions were fine. Like, don't misinterpret what I'm saying is it was it was unsafe. But it felt weird. I, mm-hmm. I think when you guys see your first movie in the theater after all this, whatever it is, you might have some version of the same feeling. I think most people have. You know, you pointed out in your piece that there's some mask imagery that is oddly paralleling this experience that we're having. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, again, I don't want to spoil the movie, but you know, the masks in this are not like Batman masks and they're not even those like inception masks where it's like 
because I'm in a dream, I'm going to take my face off and I'm really someone else, you know, the Mission Impossible thing that he did. I think masks are an interesting way to talk about Nolan because for people who see his work as somehow impersonal or veiled or holding something in, masks are a pretty interesting motif. You know, all the way back to Kubrick and the killing with the clown masks. I am sure Christopher Nolan likes the killing because he's now remade it twice as Inception and as Tenet. You know, that's the Kubrick movie that he seems really into. But yeah, the mask imagery is weird. And uh, unless he wrote the script in the future, uh, he could not have known that it was going to come out at a time where masks are just kind of part of the texture of everyday life. But there's potency to that, I think. Even if it's not artistic intention, it's there. Did it pull you out of the experience of watching the movie? I mean, were you constantly thinking about because you were wearing a mask, because there are these visual signifiers in the film, did you find that there was a kind of unnerving quality about watching this movie? No. I mean, I mean, the, un- the unnerving part for me was sort of just the general sense of being unnerved. I think a lot of us are having. I don't know how successfully you guys have put that away while watching things at home, right? And I'm not a super paranoid person either. I mean, I'm in Toronto. Things are kind of okay here. I mean, it was, it was, it was part of it. The weird part was coming out of a movie afterwards and speaking to another person about it in person, not texting someone or tweeting something or turning to my wife or kid. Cause I have watched stuff with them. You know, I keep saying to my kid, like that was a good Peppa pig. You know, I mean, we do talk about, <laughs> we do talk about that, but just like being in a room with other critics and having the conversation that we've all had a million times in our lives, but haven't had for six months. So what'd you think? How are you doing? What'd you think? And then the whole conversation was, could you make out any of the dialogue? And then that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Adam, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, just from the perspective of you have now seen this movie and can be part of a conversation. But the conversation around the movie is very different than the um, the conversation around any movie is. And I'm, and I'm not talking about the having access to Tenet in theaters of it all, but just kind of like I saw a movie. Now what? What is it like being on the inside? Of, of being on the inside of that conversation? Yeah, of having seen it. And 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 are there people to talk to and, and watching yeah. it all play out? The people to talk to are the people who live in, again, I'm not being glib when I say this, like the people who don't live in the United States, who I'm yeah. friends with, you know? People I know in London have seen it. In fact, I, I knew people in London who'd seen it before I did, and they were being super coy. They were like, we saw this a week ago. I'm like, well, <laughs> good, 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 good for you. I mean, it's interesting to be on the inside of it, but it's also, I mean, I'm not going to say lonely because that's overdoing it, but like, you know, I kind of want a lot of my friends in the States and colleagues to see it. I'm super interested to know what you guys think of it and how it'll be covered on the rigor. Cause in a moment where there's not that much else to talk about movie wise, this is whatever I think of it, like in terms of how many stars I would give it or something. It's a big capacious movie. There's a lot of angles on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I also weirdly don't think it's going to be a spoiler landmark movie. By which I mean, you know how there's those movies like The Usual Suspects or um, The Sixth Sense or Labor Day, where if you give, <laughs> if you give two up in one episode, sorry. two in one episode, if you, Adam, if you if you give the movie up, people get mad. Or The Crying Game, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah, I would even say there's some Nolan movies like that, like kind of Memento is one of those movies where you really are like, don't ruin this movie for me. Yeah, I don't think Tenet can be ruined in that sense. I actually don't. I don't. Something tells me that someone's going to tell you that you've already ruined it, just for the record. I've said literally nothing. I haven't even said what anyone's name is. Well, do, you guys know, a- do you guys know what the protagonist's name is? Can I say that? I, 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 I do, know. having read your piece. I only read your redacted version of the piece, Adam, just so you know. I mean, you can tell me. I don't really care. Should I not say what the protagonist's name is? The protagonist? I think you, sh- I think you should. Yeah, the protagonist's name is protagonist. Oh, okay. I mean... Yeah. Cool. Just, yeah, cool. Exactly. But this is what I mean. I mean, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you kind of want to not laugh at, but you kind of want to say like, wow, that's what happens in Tenet. But in terms of like a plot or being a an action movie, I mean, the only other thing I'll say, which was in the review and I don't think was redacted, but is maybe just something to think about is I, he's always said he wanted to make a Bond movie. And that's kind of the vibe he's on here. Often in good ways. So I that I wanted to ask you about that specifically. When you say that, and I have seen a few other critics cite this specifically, yeah. that this is the most Bond-esque film that he has made and it has some of the hallmarks. What do you mean by that? I mean that it is a, a globe-trotting, multiple-location thriller where there are constant things that... How vague can I be? There are constant... <laughs> 
there are constant things that need to be done, and they need to be done mostly by a really handsome, strong guy, a protagonist, if you will, who, uh, you know, looks incredible. And most of the people who he hangs out with also look incredible. And enough of them speak in British accents in the early part of the movie telling him what he has to do that you're like, oh, these are the stations of the cross of a Bond movie. You know? Sounds awesome. Well, and you know what? What's your like favorite I, kind of movie? I was yeah. just like, you, there's every single thing you said. I was like, check, check, check on my ideal movie list. Continue. And, and and so, you know, when you have an attractive guy in suits kind of solving problems with the help of highly skilled professionals, you are sort of in, in bond land and not in an oblivious way. I think in a very self-conscious way. And I just found that part of it interesting. I mean, that's why I put in the review that superficially it resembles Inception the most in the sense of let's put a team together kind of movie. And again, I don't want to say more because I don't want someone to to hate you and Sean because I'm not the host of this. So I can just they run away do. back to, to Toronto, but I don't want them to get mad at you for being like, why did you have that idiot on to spoil Tenet? Rest assured that we can draw the ire of our audience all by ourselves, Adam. Good. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, let's talk about one other thing in the in the Nolan experience. Yeah. Which is why does Christopher Nolan keep writing and creating characters that look exactly like Christopher Nolan? What the fuck is going on there? Yeah. So that was the other thing that I hope is not. I hope it is not a spoiler to say because he's in the credits that Robert Pattinson is in this movie. Uh, it is definitely not a spoiler to say that Robert Pattinson is a terrific actor. Not just because he's hot. He is just really good. He has not been bad now in a long time, if ever. Agree. And uh, he's he's real added value for this movie because he is kind of on the edges of this movie. He is a main character, though not protagonist. He is a main character. And he looks great. And he is absolutely playing Christopher Nolan, just like straight up playing him. You know, like floppy hair, nice suit, telling people kind of how to do stuff. And that's what I thought that <laughs> that's what I thought DiCaprio was in Inception. Yeah. Except that in Inception, Nolan was the protagonist. And here, Pattinson is slightly to the side of that, which I also think is interesting. But uh, you know, he certainly likes a certain haircut and a certain suit, and he makes jokes in this movie. Yes, he does make jokes about suits. So whether that's personal or satirical or trolling or unconscious it's interesting because that's how he comes through i think in this movie and again i'm just now using adjectives to describe a performance pattinson's just a lot of fun and that is also one of the things about the movie that i did like yeah i i have been thinking about this you know amanda you and i we've talked about christopher nolan maybe having a dead wife problem you know we've talked Mm -hmm. about some of the hallmarks of his storytelling he's not the strongest writer of female characters historically when we when you see Dom Cobb in Inception, it seems like an unconscious manifestation of his aspiration of what he would want to be. I would like to look like Leonardo DiCaprio with all of Christopher Nolan's accoutrement. And you identified most of his movies as humorless here, which I mostly agree with. I think he does, does not seem as if he has a strong sense of humor. But the Pattinson thing in this movie... And this movie also bearing some of the hallmarks of Inception makes me think that the machine has become sentient, that maybe he is now embarking on some sort of super self-conscious journey into storytelling that can only be told by one man. And I don't know if that's the mark of insanity or the mark of brilliance. I haven't even seen the movie, but I've already got theories coursing through my body. Am I onto something at all? Me? Yeah, Adam. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right, because I'm the one who saw it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Amanda, yes or no? Amanda, yes or no? Uh, Yeah, I mean, one thing that I don't know how often, I mean, I've actually heard it come up a little bit on this podcast and in general, like, just this idea of auteurism, like, is auteurism the default in criticism? Are Mm. we practicing it the way we're supposed to? Does the fact that auteurism has changed from what it originally meant? which is, can you perceive the signature of a filmmaker who's doing a job 
not can you perceive the signature of a filmmaker who has every resource in the world to make his or her vision and the movie is only being made because of his or her vision you know like this was supposed to be about studio filmmakers and things that critics discern not things that people are pulling out of their heads and putting on the screen like of course a charlie kaufman movie is an auteur movie you know of course paul thomas anderson is so with nolan like if we want to look at the movies that way i think you're right i don't know how much of the ticket buying audience that is going to need to spend X number of hundreds of millions of dollars for this thing to break even in the middle of a pandemic will care that much. And I think that my point is he doesn't hit it so hard that those people are going to be alienated, right? If he is a personal filmmaker, it is not to the extent of alienating an audience. He has found a midpoint between people will think I'm smart and also it doesn't matter. And Dunkirk was a really good example of that because he's nowhere in that movie. Right. You know, he's just subordinate to the history and the spectacle and the and the staging. What I just want to know, and this is you guys talk about industry and box office on this show, and we don't know, is I really actually for once care how this movie is going to make money. What would be a success in this case? What does success look like in in the case in a moment like this? Like, where is it going to make its money? How much money is it going to make? And even if it doesn't break even or turn a profit, is there still a way that it's distributor and studio are going to be happy that they put it out or should they have just waited for a lot of reasons as a closing thought i'm curious what you think about that question do you think that we're just a few days away from this movie being released in the united states i think it's going to do very well internationally but in the states we just don't know because the two biggest markets are still closed do you think that this movie will be a stateside success god i (sighs) I have no idea in part because to Adam's point, how you define success is really going to be person to person. I think the the theaters are going to have a very different definition of success than Warner brothers, than, than critics. Like it, I, and do I think that it is probably going to make more money than any other movie thus released this year? Yes, I do. But we have so many logistical questions still up in the air. Like, I mean, Sean, you and I literally don't know how we're going to see this movie. And we are the exception in the U.S. And and because uh, in most states, theaters are open at this point. But the how and the the social distancing and the re- the reduced numbers, I, you know, I think Warner Brothers will try to spin it as we were able to release in theaters. And, you know, we are remain committed to the theatrical vision and Christopher Nolan's vision. Um, so they will say it's a success no matter what is everyone in the in the US who can going to go see this I, I i truly don't know well i sent you guys a cam rip in the zoom chat the russian the, the, the... <laughs> don't even joke about that that's no, a good, that's a great I'm way kidding. to get removed from spotify instantaneously yeah, that's no, just I'm, not, I'm, like... I'm i'm kidding obviously <laughs> but i mean yeah to manda's point I don't know if there's, I think it's going to be this weird mix of like, people are desperate to see this and maybe would go see it faster than usual. And people are going to stay away. I wonder what the happy medium there is. We'll have to wait to find out. We may have to wait several years to find out. Honestly, we'll see. Adam, as usual, thanks for coming through and providing great insight and Uh, and not spoiling anything. Yeah. Yeah, no spoilers. Thanks, guys. Amanda, thank you. Uh, We'll see you later this week on The Big Picture. 